Welcome to Reinventing Solidarity, a podcast of the journal New Labor Forum and the School of Labor and Urban Studies at the City University of New York. My name is Paula Finn, podcast host and editor of New Labor Forum. Reinventing Solidarity features scholars, activists, and artists on the front lines of movements for social and economic justice. We ask the essential and often provocative questions about race, class, gender, and the role of organized labor and social justice organizations in the work of creating a radically different world, a world with solidarity, equality, and sustainability at its heart. Today, we're fortunate to be joined in conversation by Marilyn Snyderman and Stephen Lerner. I can't think of two more clear-eyed, dedicated, and innovative labor strategists. Each of them has been responsible for spurring major advances in labor organizing and movement building over the past half century. No author has written more regularly for New Labor Forum during our 25 years of existence than Stephen, and Marilyn has authored numerous articles for the journal, notably a lucid and compelling article with Secchi Fascione in 2018 on bargaining for the common good, which I'm sure we'll speak about in a few minutes. It's this history of involvement in worker and social justice organizing that prompted me to ask them to pen a new article for our forthcoming winter 2023 issue. Their article titled Making Hope and History Rhyme, A New Worker Movement from the Shell of the Old draws useful lessons for the emerging crop of activists supporting a wave of strike actions and union drives around the country. Welcome, Marilyn and Steve. We'll discuss this history and the lessons you draw from it, but let's start with your observations about the challenges and opportunities of the present moment. Thanks, Paula. It is really good to be here, and we so appreciate all the work you have done and the work of New Labor Forum. It was interesting to step back and to think about this moment, and thanks for asking us to write this. We brought two different feelings at the same time, sheer excitement and real just like a moment of opportunity that's happening right now in this country. You see what's happening with workers all across this country and globally. So it's a real opportunity. But the other thing that it forced us to do was look at this moment in a different way, which is, as you mentioned, we have been involved in this movement for a long time. I feel like for me personally, I have been lucky enough to experience this movement on every front from almost every perspective, from being a student supporting teachers on strike when I grew up in Erie, Pennsylvania, to being a rank and file member and a shop steward and a member, you know, delegate to the Labor Council in Madison, Wisconsin, which was one of the most extraordinary strong union states in the country, to also looking at building a community organizing program with the American Federation of State County Municipal Employees to link community and labor to 
being part of, with Ron Carey being elected at the Teamsters Union, which we thought all, you know, that the whole world would change at that moment, to being part of, you know, working with John Sweeney to completely change and put out a whole new vision for the AFL-CIO. There have been moment after moment after moment of really exciting times. And so while I feel excited about this moment, I'm also feeling some trepidation. Like, how do we both learn from this moment and really support the sparks that are happening right now, building on the lessons that we've learned over this time? And, and not not to take the spark metaphor too long, but what we've seen over the years is lots of sparks that have sputtered out. Yeah. And that's really our fear right now, which is that people are so excited about the strikes and the new organizing that we also need to step back and say, how do we to use the metaphor, fan the flames. How do we turn this into a giant fire, not just sparks? And that's why it's a really confusing moment because we could imagine extraordinary things happening. But what we talk about in the article is we can simultaneously imagine horrible things happening. And that puts an incredible burden on all of us because we think this is a history-changing moment. And the challenge is, can we seize it or not? Right. And while the moment is important to celebrate, because certainly the level of strike activity and unionization activity is up, it is way down from the 60s and 70s. So we're barely at 10% of strike activity compared to the 1960s and 70s. And in the 60s and 70s, the number of workers involved in strikes was also much greater. So it was, you know, an average of about 2 million back then per year. And in 2021, it was about 80,000. And what's really important about what you're saying, this is a struggle Marilyn and I have, which is we in no way want to throw cold water on the moment. Yes. To do anything that sort of says this isn't a spectacular opportunity. But the point you're making is we need to look at it in the sweep of history. And right. in fact, there were many more strikes, even when people talk about all the NLRB elections that are happening. That's partly the way up because there weren't very many versus historic numbers. And I guess the thing I think a lot about is someone who entered the labor movement in the 70s. Right. And I said when I spoke at New Labor Forum, a piece of me says, maybe I should say nothing because I've been here <laughs> Decline of the labor movement. But unions were unable to figure out in the 70s and the 80s how to take it to take those moments. And so we it feels like a weight, which is can we seize this or not? And that requires us to be both analytical, critical, and as a title of the article, which we want to give you credit for, Paula, because it's a beautiful title. <laughs> that is the challenge, which is how do we make our hopes and our dreams and our ambitions about what this world could be? rhyme with history. And that's, that's the challenge for this moment is, is this a moment we can seize and what's in our power to do versus what's just part of what is happening all over the world? So you both cut your teeth during a period of a long decline for labor. We won't blame that decline on you, uh, but it's been a long period of decline. And um, I'd like to have you both speak a bit about the challenges that you felt yourselves to be confronting during the 80s, 90s, and aughts. What did you find yourself to be kind of organizing for and organizing against? It's a really great question. I mean, I want to go back briefly to being a shop steward in Madison, Wisconsin, where I was really aware of how many times when I was dealing with grievances that people brought their whole selves, their whole 
lives to the workplace. And that's when I started saying, how do we start linking in a much more intentional way, community and labor? Like, how do we look at the whole worker? And it's been a theme throughout my life, basically, in the work we've done is that you can't just fix what's happening in the workplace without also linking it to what's going on in our communities. So it's interesting. When I first went to my national union, we set up a community organizing place back in the 1980s, saying that we can't fight publics in particular, public sector issues as a worker issue itself. And it wasn't just a jobs issue. It was how are we engaged with the community? I also, when I was at the, it was called the George Meany Center at the time, but on the faculty there, I realized that we needed to go deep with members and re-engage them in the life of this movement. And that's where we worked on the organizing model of unionism and numbers that count. How do people feel that they're part of the labor movement, not that it's some third party? And then when I went to the Teamsters, it was this opportunity to rethink what this massive union was all about. And again, it was exciting to be there with Ron Carey, but that wasn't sufficient. It's like, how do we really change the nature of local unions so that folks are going on offense and really engaged in it. So I brought kind of both of those worlds with me to the Teamsters Union. Again, the theme of a whole workers, labor community, and going deep with members, and especially lifting up race and gender. Like we did the first Teamsters Civil Rights Conference and Women's Rights Conference at the time. And then again at the AFL-CIO, weaving all of those themes together around going on offense, linking labor and community, and going deep with members. It's been an ongoing theme, but it keeps building on itself. You know, what I've struggled with over the years is, I may get in trouble for saying this, but I'm probably one of the most publicly critical people of the labor movement who has spent most of his adult life in the labor movement. And when I think back to those years, it just drives me crazy about how many opportunities we missed. And I think a lot of that is still present now, which is that the labor movement's been more interested in protecting itself as an institution and continuing its work than trying to make transformational change. And that's always been the battle that I think we've been involved in, which is, are we about just trying to sort of chug along and make sure the staff and officers get paid, or are we about changing things? And I don't know how many times I'd be in meetings with folks from unions who would say, well, I can't change my union. There's nothing to do. And I'd say, so we're asking workers to risk their job to join the union, but we're not willing to take risks within our own institutions. And I think that's a core problem, which is people are so cautious. There's not a sense of urgency then or now about the moment we're in. So when I think about the Justice for Janitors campaign, you know, the first thing that we had to do in the Justice for Janitors campaign was to deal with the fact that we had terrible leaders, we had corrupt leaders, and that needed to change. But it was insufficient, as Marilyn was saying, just to change the leadership, that we needed to remake the union in a way that dealt with the modern economy and what's going on now. And that has always been a huge fight, both to go on offense, but to go on offense, not just to fight, but around a vision of how we win and how the economy is organized now. It would be really helpful, I think, for our listeners to have you explain in some detail how Justice for Janitors worked, how did it get started, how many workers were involved, where. Okay, I'll try to capture 30 years in a minute or two. Um, (laughs) You know, the first thing to remember is SEIU started as an AFL 
janitors union. And SEIU being service employees. Yeah, yes. service the employees union. National union started as a building service employees in a national union, and it was a union of janitors. And then as the union grew and went into different jurisdictions, the janitor part of the union declined while the public and healthcare side grew. And that's pretty much a story of the whole labor movement, which is traditionally unionized parts decline, and then unions made up for the lost members in new industries. And so when we get into the 80s in janitors, we had a perfect storm, which is the industry cleaning, which is, you know, contract cleaning, who cleans office buildings, went from direct employees, you know, I worked in the Empire State Building, and I worked for the Empire State Corporation, to giant cleaning contractors. The cleaning contractors, this is getting in the weeds, but you asked me, in turn, compared competed with each other to get the work based on who could get the lowest bid to clean an office building. So whenever we organized one cleaning contractor, the building owner would say, I'm going to throw you out and I'm going to bring in another cleaning contractor that's cheaper. So what we realized in a hyper-competitive industry that we had it to, we had it to think sectorally, some people call it sector-wide, some people industry-wide, on how we again did what unions used to do, which is take wages out of competition by making everybody in the same geography pay the same pay the same amount. So in janitors, we figured out a we have to organize the entire sector because otherwise we can't raise wages. Second, we figured out the cleaning contractor, you know, that company that pays us is really a payroll agency. The real power is the building owner. The person who owns the building pays the bill and they hide behind the cleaning contractors. So we then said, well, the real fight is with the building owner, the person who has money. And that leads to a whole separate set of issues because labor law is so terrible. When we did our first campaign in Denver, Colorado, which is where Justice for Janitors had its first big victory, there was a board charge filed against us for secondary boycott. Secondary boycott is where you engage somebody who's not your direct employer, the building owner. So the board agent says to me, a charge has been filed because you were picketing the building owner who is not the direct employer. And I, at the grand age of 28 or 29, said, damn right, we're picketing the building owner because he's a bad guy. And the board agent said, you really don't know, do you, that that's illegal? And I said, no, I didn't know that. I thought he was the bad guy. <laughs> and so all that aside is we realized we had to pressure the building owners, but there's huge legal restrictions on what you can do to a building owner. So one of the things we figured out right off is there's literally a trillion dollars of pension capital, meaning money, workers deferred wages that are in public employee and Taft-Hartley pension plans. And we got like a trillion dollars of that money to say, I'm going to do the short version, not the complicated right. legal version, to say, we're not going to invest in office buildings if you don't pay and treat janitors decently. We argued that it was fiduciarily bad to invest in folks who weren't going to do a good job. So what we did is we first said we have to organize all the workers at once. Second, we said we have to target who the real evil is, the building right. owner. And third, we needed to find all kinds of leverage. One level was the capital that they need to invest in office building. Another level was we needed to go deep, deep, deep with workers, both union members and non-union. So we organized, there used to be a debate among organizers on what your assessment system is, on will people support the union, one through three, one through four. We had a one to two system. You're willing to strike or not strike. So we built toward strikes backed by capital using massive civil disobedience. And really the simple idea was the real estate industry in most cities is the ruling class. 
of that city. And so some combination of all kinds of things, we needed to create a crisis for the ruling class in that city that the whole city wouldn't function if janitors weren't paid and treated decently. And the best example of that would be when we shut down the bridges into Washington, D.C. We legally were not allowed to picket the buildings. We were under all these court orders. We said it is a First Amendment protest. And we blocked the 14th Street Bridge into the city. The Supreme Court didn't meet. A lot of people, Congress didn't meet. We quite understand the implication. I got a call from a guy named John Sweeney. We forgot to mention we were going to do this under the theme of better to beg for forgiveness and ask permission. John Sweeney was at that time president of service employees and then later president of the AFL-CIO. And the fascinating thing that happened when John, so John Sweeney initially was like getting calls from Congress people. Like, I can't get to work because of your janitors blocking the bridge. But he came to embrace it. And when he ran right. for president of the AFL-CIO, he was running against a guy named Tom Donahue, who had actually been a close friend of his, who was very contentious. And Donahue said he didn't believe in building blocking bridges. He believed in building bridges. And Sweeney said he believed in building bridges when they let up the mortifier long enough, but he was into blocking them. So that theme of directly confronting and using civil disobedience ended up becoming a whole theme of John Sweeney's election about what kind of labor movement we should have. I could go on and on, but let me see. And of course, one salient aspect of Justice for Janitors is that you were organizing with people formerly considered to be kind of unorganizable. So immigrant workers, a lot of them undocumented, and the campaign proved that wrong. In the spirit of honesty, SCIU had almost given up on janitors in the 80s. The membership was in free fall, concessionary agreement after concessionary agreement. And maybe this is a lesson for this moment. I think it's because they had almost given up that they gave us the freedom to do all this crazy stuff because they had no idea what to do. And it's through that activity and that creativity that we tried all these different kinds of things. And the key thing was everybody said, you can't organize janitors. They're undocumented. They're part-time. They're contracted out. They had a whole list. And my favorite moment was when we started to win big victories, people said, well, anybody can organize janitors because they're all, they have nothing to lose. One of the problems in the labor movement is that we're full of excuses. And so it's either impossible because it's too hard, or if you win, it isn't relevant to anybody else. But I think the key thing about Justice for Janitors, and then I'll stop, is we offered a window into the future of of capitalism, which is capitalism works out first on the poorest, most vulnerable people. So they part-time, they get rid of health insurance, and that spread throughout the economy. It started first with janitors and other vulnerable workers. One of the great ironies is janitors in this period won health insurance, citywide agreements, and full-time work back. At the same time, was permeating the rest of the economy. So we both were a window into how bad it could get, but also a window into what could be won. Stephen, you hinted at a change in leadership at the AFL-CIO. So John Sweeney in 1995 becomes president of the AFL-CIO. And shortly after that began with Marilyn, a major initiative, Union Cities. So I'd like to, Marilyn, you to talk a little bit about how that came about, why it came about. So thanks. It is when Sweeney was first elected president of the AFL-CIO, I remember this one day where he brought a lot of the new directors that he had hired together and said, we have this opportunity, right? We can really make huge changes. How do we dream? How do we think differently? How do we, how are we bolder? And I remember at the time as the director of field mobilization, I actually got him to change the name from services. 
one of the primary things with the AFL-CIO is we have a geographic base. It's where different unions come together and can work on a strategy together. And there have been these labor councils across the country. And most people said to me, they're worthless. It's a retirement home for a lot of folks. It's They don't do much. And it was looking at there were sparks around the country of real activity, like what made that happen? What was possible and how would that impact our movement? And so I remember putting up a flipping a thing about what's possible with labor councils. And most people were like nothing. And then we started visioning what could be. And so out of that came a whole strategy around union cities where people live and work. What is it we're trying to build locally in community across community, knowing that it's it's different throughout? And so we brought together where those sparks were. We brought together leaders from across the country who really were doing some creative work. It was Bruce Colburn in Milwaukee or Amy Dean in, in South Bay. It was lots of really interesting, great activists and said, what do we need to do to amplify this and build it across the country? How do we pull out lessons? How do we have political power? How do we have folks feel like they're part of a movement, not just their union? How do we have real transformational work with our community partners as opposed to transactional I remember one labor council leader said to me, why do you want us to work with community groups, Marilyn? I said, what do you mean? He said, all they want is money from us. I said, for God's sake, give it to them. It's like we're all in this together. (laughs) Right, right. So we would do all kinds of strategies across the country on how are we building political power together and how are we supporting the sectoral campaigns like justice for janitors or hotel development? How are we supporting national and global campaigns that are rooted in communities? And so we came up with elements of what it would take and then started really focusing the field staff to work with local leaders to transform what was happening in community after community. Can you describe one of the, what you might consider more successful local Union City initiatives? So one of the places is I worked really closely with a leader in LA, Miguel Contreras, who when he first came, he was first elected head of the Labor Council there. We sat down and kind of started strategizing together. And he brought his, as a newly elected leader of LA, which had been, LA was in tough shape, both in general, but also in terms of its you know, the union, it's the labor movement. And he started bringing together key allies and then coming up with a whole strategy for LA. And it was extraordinarily transformative. They tried, again, this is a process of changing the political work that they were doing. I remember when they first primaried a Democrat against a Democrat, a Democrat who everybody was comfortable with, who was doing okay. And everybody said, that's not enough. We need to actually raise the bar on politicians in L.A. We needed to get folks supporting each other's campaigns, and we needed to be in a really different kind of transformational relationship with community groups, particularly with immigrant rights groups, with just in the whole black and brown community in L.A., we needed really different relationships. They started even linking their bargaining together and all of that and supporting different organizing. And we launched something called the Immigrant Worker Freedom Ride. And I remember being on that bus with Maria Elena Durazo. Tell them what the Immigrant Worker Freedom Ride was. The Immigrant Worker Freedom Ride was we tried at the time, there were a lot of folks in the labor movement who didn't want to see immigration change, right? 
Right. And the labor movement, of course, has a very mixed history with immigrants. It was a very mixed history with immigrants. There were union members who actually talked about, please, you know, we don't want there to be a path toward immigration reform. They're taking our jobs. It was terrible. So we set up something called the Immigrant Worker Freedom Ride with Unite Here. And it was taking the issue around immigration reform through about, I think it was 20 buses across 100 cities in the United States and had folks really go deep around what are the issues, bringing both unions and community members together so that they would talk through and heard real workers' voices around the need for immigration reform. And it was transformational in many communities. And we also wanted to intentionally link in the civil rights movement at the time and brought in all kinds of civil rights leaders to participate and activists with us. And and one of the things that we don't want to lose here, which is that as a result of all this, the AFL changed its position on immigration and embraced. And, you know, our first janitor campaign in Denver, the entire organizing committee was deported. So one of the things that happened, and this, I think, was the interplay between the industry campaigns in Union Cities, was that our campaign and janitors' hotels campaign, all the people, the drywall strike the carpenters had, there was a moment where immigrant communities were on fire. And I actually think there's interesting lessons for this moment, too, remembering that hundreds of thousands of immigrants were marching. Many people didn't think of the Justice for Janitors campaign as a union. They would talk about it being an immigrant rights movement. They would talk about coming out of the shadow. Our work was grounded. I think it's really important for now. Janitors succeeded because we connected and tapped into a broader movement. And what Marilyn's talking about with the immigrant worker freedom right is a broader movement that changed not just the policy of the AFL, but for the first time, many unions said yes. Workers from Mexico or South America are not our enemies, and we need to join together with them. And that was a dramatic and important change. And this all played out. You know, we had the 1990 strike in Century City where we were attacked by the police and 60 people were jailed and multiple people hospitalized. Two women miscarried. One person ultimately was beaten so badly he died years later. I remember when that's when the police attacked us in Century City, it was this moment where it this was all pre having our own little phone thing but it got all got filmed by the tv traffic cameras and it went worldwide that janitors were attacked and beaten in century city but partly that then set the stage for what's the role of the central labor council what's the role of the broader movement and i won't forget the moment when mayor bradley literally said to one of the building owners in chicago my city will not burn because you want to pay less money in LA than Chicago. We elevated the issue to where the mayor really realized that the city, people were angry. And, you know, this is all overlapping with Rodney King and all those periods. So there's so many different things going. And I think that's when I think about now, it's, and when Marilyn talks about community, how do we connect in a deep, deep way to the movements that are moving people? Just as an aside, the labor movements that grew the most in recent history were South Africa South and South Korea and Brazil. And it's because in those three countries, the labor movement was totally connected to the anti-dictatorship and the democracy movements. And when they defeated their dictatorships, the labor movement exploded. And so partly, I think Marilyn and I have had a taste right. of what it looks like when that's starting to happen. In my own experience, I feel like every time we got close and I talk about this in the article, people, instead of putting on the gas or putting more gasoline on the fire, their instinct was, let's try to digest our victories and be cautious. And that's another thing that I'm terrified of, is that we'll pick up momentum, things will be going well, and then somebody will say, well, let's not take too many risks. And that's one of the lessons of justice for janitors, is our very success led to some people saying, whoa, we don't want to take that risk anymore because we've arrived. 
drawing forward also your work with Union Cities in LA, people forget that California was not always blue. And it was largely that Latino labor work that transformed the state's politics. Major, major victory. And I remember Miguel introducing me to Karen Bass years ago. I mean, it's like all these things blink. Who's now the mayor. Who's now the mayor. Exactly. It's like, I do want to just lift up on Stephen's point about justice for janitors and union cities. When you think about the role that the Labor Council in LA played to support the overall campaign, it was a win on so many different levels all at once for the workers, for the community, for the labor movement. Now, both of you have spoken a bit on organizing immigrant workers and some of the changes that have taken place. Of course, labor has a more than mixed history with regard to African-American workers. I mean, three things on that. One is justice for janitors and many of its tactics was modeled on a lot of what the civil rights movement did. You know, civil disobedience, like that really shaped a lot of our thinking. But in one of the things we did is after we organized all the janitors who were primarily Latino in in commercial office buildings in LA and other places, we realized that the security officers were overwhelmingly African-American and they now made less money than the janitors. So we kicked off a giant campaign um, called Stand for Security to organize security officers. And in LA, it was explicitly about building black brown power that the janitors were then funded and led you know, the campaign to organize security guards over the idea that this was both how we had more power in our industry, because we'd have everybody in the office building union, but also about how we changed the politics of LA by having black and brown workers organizing together. So we ended up in security, which was overwhelmingly African-American, winning net global agreements with the biggest security companies, including Pinkerton, which are now unions, ironically. And so one of the things that we did very consciously was say, who are the workers who aren't getting organized? And how do we use the power that we built with janitors to organize a whole new sector? It's something that people don't know a lot about, but it's it was one both by going deep in the African-American community. And we talked about how much money and wages were lost in South Central every week because now security guards got paid so much less than janitors. So that's like one example of a very conscious pivot. And the final thing I'll mention, that I'll turn it back to Marilyn, is bargaining for common good is where we've really dug in on this. And the question of racialized capital, of going back to Chicago teachers strike when they said the city's broke on purpose. It's really in bargaining for common good that we have tried to tackle and support a whole new generation of leaders like Stacey Davis Gates from Chicago teachers and others who are pioneering new ground, both on the organizing community, but also on the racial justice side. Marilyn, can you speak a little more on bargaining for the common good? Your article was, I recommend it to everyone. It can be found on the New Labor Forum website. But just to spell out clearly bargaining for the common good as a strategy and the central goals. So for years, I think we ended up as a movement narrowing our scope of bargaining so that it got to focus just on wages and benefits. And when you think back to when I was saying that workers are whole people, we've got to go bolder and broader in our demands. So bargaining for the common good is like what I call weaving together everything we've talked about before, which is how do we have a vision for what we want to see in our communities? Who are we bringing together both on the union front and community front to talk about what the long-term vision for our community is and how do we use bargaining as a tactic 
to make that happen. And so on a concrete example, like you look at the St. Paul teachers, right? Who basically would say they weren't centering race in the way they should have. They weren't focusing on children's needs as much. And it was bringing together community and students and teachers and talking through what should be at the bargaining table that could make a huge difference. So they brought parents to the bargaining table to say, we need smaller class size. And the school board's like, what? You know, why do you have parents here? And the parents are sitting here and the parents got enraged and said, because those are our kids in the classroom. And it it started changing the dynamics. So it wasn't teachers versus parents. It was what's our community need? What are the kind of schools our children deserve? And so we have been working with this incredible network of leaders across the country that are trying to center race, trying to center, you know, really a whole different way of looking at bargaining to change our communities in a really sustainable, bold and creative way. And of course, teachers have been the kind of punching bag of the right wing for quite a long time. And that work of bargaining for the common good has done a lot to shift. One of the examples I found really interesting with, was it Chicago Teachers Union, was this the question of restorative justice. So especially in communities of color, where particularly male students of color are demonized, are overpunished, and suspended and detained, etc., that the parents really raised their voices about that. And it seems the union took it very seriously. Could you talk a little bit about that? I was just thinking, actually, when you were talking both on restorative justice, is it's a whole different way of supporting students and actually helping and making sure that what we talk a lot about is, is racism is systemic. It's not like one individual kid over here or over there. It's like, what is the system that we have that some teachers will talk about the school to prison pipeline that we end up, I mean, it's, it's really terrible. And so what are the changes that we need to make in the schools that will stop that in its place? I mean, even one other concrete example in LA is the students came to the teachers and said, they keep saying that there's random backpack checks right? That somehow they're checking us for, are we carrying weapons or this or that? And they can just pull us over. And if you ask, it's not random, right? It was, who were they pulling over? And the students went to the teachers and said, can you get them to stop? It's so upsetting to get pulled aside to have them check our backpacks. And the teachers took it to the bargaining table and won. It's how do we change and build much healthier relationships and challenge systemic racism in every single way we can. And of course, teachers are still in this country disproportionately white. So breaking down these racial disconnections, lack of understanding. Minneapolis teachers in Minneapolis, they bargained in their last contract that the first layoffs will not be based on seniority because there's such a history of you start hiring teachers of color, then there's layoffs, and then they get laid off. These are also complicated, complicated issues because when you really want to challenge racism, it means that you also have to look at longtime union practices. Like seniority, right. Like seniority, you know, the old joke, you know, last hired, first fired. And so there's not an easy answer. But, you know, when we think about bargaining for common good, in LA, the United Teachers of Los Angeles actually did a community bargaining survey Right. Unions often 
do a survey of their members. What do you want? There, they did dozens and dozens of meetings, and we're doing this around the country, saying, what do you as a parent or a community member want? Their bargaining demands are everything from, in this round, everything from green spaces to union-made electric school buses to less cops in schools or cops at a school. These expansive demands came because they got deeply into what do people really need to change their lives. And it isn't better test scores. Again, Chicago teachers, part of what they struck over was it's 40,000 homeless students. If you don't deal with homelessness, then how do you deal with outcomes? And deal with homelessness by way of banning evictions during the school year. Exactly. And to the same poll, teachers actually negotiated. It's interesting. In Minnesota, there's a law that you can't foreclose on a farm during peak season. And that goes back to the depression. You get to harvest it. Then they foreclose and we all need to eat (laughs) but so one of the things they won in saint paul was that the school would not put any of its funds or money in any bank that foreclosed during the school year and so these are things that are so logical what's worse for student outcomes than losing your home but what we've done in bargaining for common good if you imagine that what the law has done and employers have done is narrow what we can legally bargain over and then they say oh the greedy unions all they do is bargain over money It's like a a, a great trick they've set up on us. And we've bought into it. What we've done in bargaining for common good, it's not just on all the issues that we deal with. You know, the the Minnesota janitors went on strike over climate demands. Is we're saying, what are all the things that matter to the world that we can amplify and take to the bargaining table? It doesn't mean we'll win them all, but how do we use that moment when thousands of people are in motion to raise the biggest possible issues? And that's what we see coming up in the future, whether it's in all different sectors, people organizing about workers' conditions, about racism, and about the environment as sort of, and global warming, those become sort of three pegs that need to be part of any big campaign if we're really talking about what's going on in the world and matters to people. And it's interesting because some people say, boy, if we put more on the bargaining table, we're going to get less, and that's going to actually alienate our members. The reverse is happening. People get inspired that their unions care about this and that it is having just the opposite impact and just really engaging our members, engaging community, breaking down the silos of getting pitted against each other, which that supports, you know, the ruling class as well. Now, in your article, you draw some lessons from all of this. Uh, So assuming this is part of a lesson, if you would speak a bit about what you think the major lessons are for those younger organizers who are helping to unionize Amazon, Starbucks, and workers around the country. God, lessons. Well, I mean, I think people are now experiencing what we experienced for years, which is there was people have won an enormous amount of NLRB elections over the years. And one of the lessons that many of us drew is that labor law is so broken in this country that it doesn't mean you never should do an NLRB election, but relying solely on the legal system will fail. You know, if you go back, we won so many elections, tens of thousands of people and never got contracts. So to me, one lesson is that we have to have a theory and a plan of how we're going to have power to defeat the employer. Because the biggest problem is that if you, you know, what normally comes after a round of winning elections is a round of decerts, decertifications. Decertifications. Right. Which is, and I've been through this again and again, where we don't have a, a we don't, either don't have the power or a way to build the power to get contracts. So the employer comes back a year later and say, well, you voted for the union. You didn't get anything. Let's vote the union out. So I think this question of what actually leads to victories and how do we do leverage is really important. 
we cannot win without workers, but workers being pro-union alone is insufficient. I have worked on multiple year-long strikes where we walked every worker out, and then we walked the scabs out, and then we walked the second round of scabs out, and we still lost because work can be moved. We can think of all the reasons why. And so I think this question of what it takes, it's not just brand damage. Like people have fallen into the trap that if we just talk bad about a company, that's enough. We have to figure out how we literally cause enough disruption and cost them enough money that they change their view on unions. So that to me would be one really important lesson. I would also add in from all of these campaigns, what's the vision we're fighting for? to be careful about focusing just on what we are against, but really what is it we're for and how to use that as a way to organize both our own members to feel excited and inspired and also how we build power across all the different silos. I worry today about how many wonderful community groups and unions there are and none of them speak to each other. We don't work together. We don't think about how this is aligned and we don't have to have, and I want to underscore the word alignment as opposed to coalition. That's like, how are we working together as opposed to signing on to an endorsement letter or something that just has their name on it, but isn't going deeper? You know, I'd, I'd say other lessons. I mean, we've talked about the lessons throughout. I, I want to come back to this lesson about the inherent conservatism of elected leaders. There's something about getting elected that then makes people really conservative. And some of it I completely understand where, you know, the unions have money, unions have pension plans, there's all sorts of legal issues. And I think one of the lessons that I take out of all of this, it may be a little bit abstract, but it is dying slowly seems acceptable to people. You know, when, when we enter the labor movement, I think 25% of people in the 70s were still in unions. It's down to 6% in the private sector. And what I always think about is if you lose the way people always have lost, nobody gets mad at you. But if you try something new and lose, everybody says, oh, that didn't work. And I guess part of what that brings me to is that if we're not willing, I don't want to use a gambling metaphor, but maybe I will, if we're not willing to put it all on red and take all of our resources and all of our power and use them at this moment, there isn't another moment to build within the shell of the current labor movement. I have sort of a naive faith and hope that if the labor movement disappeared tomorrow, something would be reborn. But I think the lesson I have and that we've blown for the last 30 years is we still are the largest single membership organizations in the country. We have billions of dollars in assets. We have enormous power. And generally, we refuse to use it and are afraid to use it because we're afraid that somehow that means we won't be able to use it later. I don't know how many times I've been in a campaign where somebody said, well, we don't want to do that because that might really piss the boss off and then he'll fight us harder. So to me, if we believe this is a moment and we believe that this moment will decide whether the world, I guess I'll go back to Rose Luxemburg, you know, is it the choice is barbarism or not? Yeah. If we believe that, then that has to infuse everything we do to fight our natural instinct, which is to be cautious and conservative. And I think one of the reasons we won Injustice for Janitors is because we operated on the unions dying, and therefore we have to try things, even if it pisses off our employers, even if it pisses off politicians, that our only hope is to build a worker community movement. And the lesson to me is we're our biggest enemy on that because we're so cautious. I would say... I think one of the things that we end with in the article is the hope that bargaining for the common good brings, what we call organizing and bargaining for the common good, because I feel like we are working with folks who are 
willing to take risks, who are willing to try some really bold things to think out of the box. And it's, we can't keep doing things the same way they've been. And it's, so it gives me hope. And I think that's the best we can do. I think there isn't one silver bullet. I don't know if that's the, I hate that expression actually, but there's not one thing that will turn the tide. And so the thing that what we tried to do here was pull out lessons we are learning and not to say we tried that it didn't work, but instead say we tried that. What if it did work? What if it can we learn from? And how do we go bolder and even bigger about it? And to me, that's really what gives me hope. I see workers all over. There is so much hope out there. How do we pull all these pieces together to expand? And of course, some of the hope also is related to the fact that this is a post-Occupy Wall Street world now that we live in with some different public awareness about neoliberalism, although maybe people wouldn't call it that, and certainly the power of corporations and the gross income inequality, the 99 versus the 1%, and a growing number of young folks who now consider socialism a better option than capitalism. And of course, the, I think, 65% or so level of popularity of unions now, it certainly wasn't that way a couple decades ago. So there's that environment that creates possibility. The question is, will we be able to take advantage properly? You know, when we look back over recent years, we have to fight the tendency to sort of dismiss stuff that's been tried, as Marilyn said. But I think you really, in some ways, nailed, like if I was a sociologist from another planet looking down at Earth and that list that you gave of a whole generation that from Occupy Wall Street learned that capitalism doesn't work without repeating everything you said, I would say there are no more ripe conditions for a radical movement to remake the country and remake labor. And so, as some of us used to say in the day, the objective conditions are there. And the challenge is, do we have the creativity? Do we have the courage? Do we have the strategies to take advantage of them? And that, to me, is what's so exciting but painful about this moment, because there's other times where the best you can do is defense to try to stop bad things from happening. And I feel that's been much of my experience in the labor movement. We're fighting to stop more bad things. This is our moment to make good things happen. This is our moment to make spectacular things happen. This is our moment to imagine the world we want our kids and grandkids to grow up in. And that requires thinking much more broadly. You know, sometimes I joke that the labor movement, movement's been reduced to union good versus <laughs> un meaning unions are good. People like us, but good for what? Right. Right. Good for right. what? And at a moment with impending, you know, with fascism rising, with planetary disaster, planetary, planetary disasters, it's, you know, it's looking at climate. It's all the racial justice uprisings right now. It's the gender justice uprisings. It's all these pieces and democracy and fascism, basically. Right. It's like, how do we knit these together in a very intentional way? And that, I think, is when I when I talk to young people, that's what's exciting for them. It's like, how is the labor movement an answer to moving this forward? And in a way, that takes me back to where I started, which is, you know, I started, we say in the article, I caught the fever in, I think, 1974 and sure. volunteered for the Farm Workers Union and said, this is amazing. This is the most extraordinary thing, people joining together to transform their lives. So I did the logical thing, which is I dropped out of high school and went to work as an organizer. But 
when I think about young people now, there was something in the air then, and there was a whole generation of us that sort of came on the tail end of the anti-war and civil rights movement. I'm a little younger than some of those folks, but that landed as the 60s and early 70s movements dissipated, that labor was the way to make change. And what's so exciting to me is there was a generation of folks that went into the labor movement. Some of us are still around, some of them are not, because we viewed labor as the only way to make the kind of change we need. And we're back to that moment now. And it is so exciting to see so many young people, whether they're in shops that they're trying to organize, whether they're going in as salts, which is somebody who goes into a shop with a specific goal of organizing, whatever the thing is, it's not Stephen and Marilyn that are going to build this labor movement at right. this point. It's young people, young workers, young organizers who say literally the future of humanity is at stake. It's not hyperbole. It's not an exaggeration to say that. And building an American labor movement that doesn't say we represent a specific employer or a specific sector, but a labor movement that says our mission is to represent the entire working class. I was in a meeting in Brazil a couple of years ago where this guy got up and said, we have our industry unions to negotiate wages, but we have a labor movement to transform society. And that is to me what labor's done wrong. We've had a labor movement to raise wages. We haven't had a labor movement whose goal is to transform society. Well, on that note, I wanna express my gratitude, a whole movement's gratitude for the contributions that both of you have made over the past many decades. And thank you for all your contributions to New Labor Forum as well. Uh, we hope that the journal serves as a platform for the important ideas and work that you've done. Thanks. Thank you, Paula. Issues like those raised in today's podcast are taken up in classroom discussions at the School of Labor and Urban Studies, where our preeminent faculty and engaged and diverse student body grapple with the most pressing challenges confronting organized labor and working class communities. For more inform information about the school, visit slu.cuny.edu. To learn more about the podcast and listen to other episodes, visit slu.cuny.edu slash podcast. To subscribe to New Labor Forum and or sign up for our free monthly newsletter, visit newlaborforum.cuny.edu.